For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, with the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, and also, yes, merch. We finally have it, from hats, to shirts, to mugs. And we also have a donate button, by the way. And now, it's time to go whack, whack, whack. Because our lead story concerns the claim that climate change is killing off penguins by making too much ice. As in, quote, Antarctica penguins, how too much ice triggered population decline, end quote. Which differs remarkably from the usual warnings that climate change is doing in penguins by melting all the ice. For instance, the settled science of 10 years ago, which declared, quote, melting sea ice threatens emperor penguins' study finds, end quote. So you see, there's no way out of this climate extinction maze. Even though, quote, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service granted federal protections to the world's tallest and heaviest penguin species Tuesday, end quote. Which will come as a great relief, except that uh, any emperor penguin on American territory is one lost penguin. Or it's in a zoo or an aquarium where it hardly needs federal protection. Meanwhile, the emperors are not endangered where they actually live. Still, if you're wondering how best to kill off a penguin, apparently ice comes in handy. Thus, the BBC reports breathlessly that too much Antarctic ice threatens that cute penguin. No, not that cute penguin, the mighty emperor. That cute penguin, the adorable Adélie. When hunting penguins, it's also desirable to carry an 8.5-gauge warming scenario. For as Roger Pilkey Jr. noted of the latest deposing of the emperor version, quote, On listing of the emperor penguin under the Endangered Species Act, I have no comment on listing decision itself. I note it depends upon characterizing, with no justification, RCP 8.5 as a plausible scenario, not business as usual, not worst case, apparently somewhere in the middle, end quote. Now you have to follow a chain of links from the actual listing decision by the USFWS to a separate paper by the USGS, that's the United States Geological Survey, but sure enough, on page 10, they try to disarm critics by admitting that RCP 8.5 is not business as usual, only to say that it is. Quote, RCP 8.5 is not necessarily a business-as-usual scenario, for example, Housefather and Peters 2020, but neither is it a worst-case scenario. RCP 8.5 is simply representative of a plausibly higher level of GHG concentrations in the atmosphere, broadly consistent with high-warming scenarios modeled by previous global climate assessments, end quote. Yeah, all of which badly overestimate warming. Among other things, RCP 8.5 involves global coal use skyrocketing even as global economies collapse. And if you treat it with the contempt it deserves, guess what? Quote, the projected decline in the global population of emperor penguins is much less under the low emission scenarios, end quote. And that will never do. By the way, the whole story is about what's supposedly going to happen to emperors 80 years from now because, quote, climate models project significant declines in Antarctic sea ice to which the emperor penguin life cycle is closely tied, end quote. As for the actual population of actual penguins outside a computer, well, it's stable to the extent that anyone even knows what it is. But they're all going to die anyway somehow because with climate change, anything cute always is. Something that really is endangered, by contrast, is logic on climate. The headline, quote, Germany sets windfall tax at 90% for clean power generators, end quote, to fund subsidies to beleaguered energy consumers, might prompt people to growl things like, quote, if you need more evidence that climate is all about communism, end quote. 
and someone did. But at least communists tried to be systematic in their thinking. The Greens tried to ram through an energy vendor on the grounds that since alternative fuels are so much cheaper than the traditional kind, they must be subsidized heavily while hydrocarbons are taxed or banned. No, wait. That's not the punchline. It's the setup. The punchline is that once you've managed to make energy so scarce and expensive that even the new kind is making money, then you tax the fools who believed in you and invested in it punitively and give subsidies for the fossil kind. It's not a plot, it's stupidity. And speaking of stupidity, it is curious how politics changes people. They charge into office determined to save the world by their wisdom, compassion, and shining character, or at least they think they're going to talk plain common sense instead of burbling partisan rubbish. But before you know it, they're putting out press releases saying, quote, conservative bill exempting farm fuels from the expensive carbon tax passes committee, end quote, as though it was the best news since the tomb was found empty. The sponsor of the bill said, quote, this exemption is needed to reflect the realities of the entire Canadian agriculture industry and the undue financial burden the carbon tax places on all the necessary practices undertaken by farmers and ranchers like drying grain, irrigating crops, or heating and cooling livestock barns, end quote. Well, and sure, all these things are necessary, but what it amounts to is that agriculture is very greenhouse gas intensive, so, they say, it shouldn't be penalized for emitting greenhouse gases. Which would make sense if you said there was no climate crisis. Unfortunately, Canada's conservatives do say that there is one which they can fight better than those awful liberals with their, quote, liberal carbon tax, end quote. Just don't ask them how, or they'll babble something about letting farmers burn up the planet, and drivers, and companies, but absolutely, positively, nobody else except homeowners. As for politicians, we held off on awarding a climate hypocrite of the week during COP27, giving the staggering number of people who were flying to Egypt to crank up the AC and otherwise spew carbon to make promises they had no plan for keeping, or even fail to make promises. But now that they've all flown home to catch flights elsewhere, telling us how marvelous they are, we've opted for progressive darling Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, who just broke that nation's record for international flights by a minister in a yearly quarter. Her caucus racked up $1.2 million in flights, and she alone accounted for 329,000 of them. And we grant that if you're going anywhere from New Zealand, uh, driving is an unattractive option. But Greta used to take sailboats, and anyway, people have Zoom on their computers now. So, Prime Minister, is there a climate crisis, or isn't there? Because if there is, you should stay home instead of gallivanting off to the UN or some trade summit photo op. And if there isn't... You shouldn't say that there is, at the photo op or anywhere else. And at this point, to spare your sensibilities, I am not going to burst into a chorus of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. You're welcome. But I am going to point out that whereas Genesis 9, 13-15 says that God sent the rainbow to promise that no matter how wicked human beings got in the future, and we've sure been given it the old college try, he would not send another Noah-scale flood. But climate science now says that, in fact, rainbows will come to tell us it's all over. A paper in Global Environmental Change, a nice neutral title, examined, quote, global rainbow distribution under current and future climates, end quote, and found, a bit unexpectedly, that despite being nice, they will increase slightly overall because of climate change, but some poor people will get ripped off. And as Cicero said of philosophers, so we say of climate alarmists, there is nothing so absurd, but one of them has said it. 
including that we should, quote, get ready for more volcanic eruptions as the planet warms, end quote. And earthquakes, too. Uh, to be fair, we also did try searching for climate change and hangnail, and all we got was a surfeit of painful metaphors. But there really was a study on rainbows. And it's noteworthy that people would spend time and government money telling us, quote, the rainbow, a common atmospheric optical phenomenon, is a multicolored circle in the sky that results from the refraction and reflection of light by liquid water drops, end quote, complete with reference to Hardwick 2004, before throwing in some diversity, equity, and inclusion to avoid the wrath of woke. Quote, for ancient Greeks, Romans, Norsemen, and Polynesians, rainbows were a path between earth and heaven created by gods. Leon Fraser, 2001, Bussinger, 2021. In the Bible, rainbows are mentioned as God's promise to never again flood the earth, and they credit Karupu and Liverman, 2011, not Bible. And then it goes on, quote, Contemporary society commonly uses rainbows and flags and emblems to symbolize peace, happiness, and equality. Vince, 2020, in case you doubted it. End quote. Now, since we must have inclusion of all viewpoints, except that there's no climate crisis, they also inform us that, quote, rainbows have also been characterized in negative ways. In the folklore of the Karen people of Southeast Asia, the rainbow is a dangerous demon that eats children, Jenkins 2019. In several cultures in Central and South America, it is a malign spirit that causes harm, Leon Fraser 2001. People from various tropical locales see rainbows as snakes. Lowenstein, 1961, Wieland et al., 2013, end quote. And so Bjorn Lomberg, who continues to believe in man-made global warming, at least for now, while ridiculing the excesses of alarmists, tweeted indignantly, quote, your tax money at work. New research, climate means 5% more rainbows on average, but some hot spots will see severe rainbows decline. Africa and South America won't have quite as many more rainbows. Then he asks, don't we have more important things to research, end quote? Yeah, like habitat loss or plastic in the oceans or the absurdity of thinking that computer models are so exact that they can predict a 1 20th increase in global rainbowing. Mind you, these re researchers do know where to find a pot of gold. It's right there in the government grant. In this week's newsletter, we also note that Swedes who felt some satisfaction that Greta Thunberg was putting their nation on the map, even if she was a dreary scold, may be feeling different now that she led a march through their streets to sue her own country for being climate hypocrites. Naturally, NBC cheers her on. Also naturally, Dunbury and her children's crusade are chewing on the hand that fed them. Quote, Sweden has never treated the climate crisis like a crisis, said Anton Foley, spokesman of the youth-led initiative Aurora, which prepared and filed the lawsuit. Sweden is failing in its responsibility and breaking the law, end quote. Boo! Bad Sweden! Deniers! Trumpists! It is a curious aspect of the situation that these young people are part of the revolt of the elite, attacking the establishment to the cheers of the establishment that is stunned to find itself denounced for posturing instead of acting. Which, to be fair, is pretty much what they've done. Apparently they never thought Swedish doom goblins would eat their face. In the newsletter, we also continue our Everybody Knows feature by examining the popular idea that we have to do something. This, insert inane policy idea here, is something, therefore we have to do it. As writers in the Globe and Mail said recently, quote, ignoring climate change is becoming really, really expensive, end quote. 
Now, this comes from authors who live in an alternate universe where everyone ignores climate change, unlike the one we inhabit, where people talk about it nonstop. So, hang on to your wallets, because they have plans. Whereas we have a question, which is, and if and we don't? Because even if everybody knows that doing nothing is not an option, what's the downside of doing nothing? As we recently noted, a new study from Canada's parliamentary budget officer warned, or tried to warn, that if we do nothing about climate breakdown thingy, our GDP will be a whopping 6.6% smaller in 2100 than it otherwise would be. Which sounds bad only if you ignore the fact that the Canadian economy will have grown more than three and a half times its current size by then. And that the PBO estimated that if we take drastic action, instead of Canada's economy being 6.6% smaller in 2100, it will be 5.8% smaller. Thus, the benefit of doing something comes down to 0.8% of GDP 80 years from now. And obtaining that subatomic-sized benefit by complying with the Paris Accord or whatever it is they have in mind would cost us far more than 0.8% of GDP. So, doing nothing is not just an option, it's a better option. We end up richer. And for the world as a whole, the story is pretty much the same. So don't just do something, sit there. Uh, unless doing something means ordering our merch or making a donation to the Climate Discussion Nexus. Ah, and speaking of doing nothing, the Japanese Meteorological Agency has posted the Pacific Typhoon numbers for 2022, which is near enough to being over, since December typhoons are very rare, and apparently the inevitable worse-than-we-feared-we're-all-gonna-die trend didn't show up. Now, to be fair, the typhoons didn't do nothing. They declined from 1951 to 2022, though only by a sluggish half a tornado per decade. But it's still a downward trend, the opposite of what we were threatened with or promised. As for sea level, we again dip into the co2science.org archive to see whether the oceans are warming as the models predict, and in the process, expanding and rising. It seems they are not. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'd like to see Greta sue the ocean.